Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the 82nd Psalm. You can find it if you want to look at it on page 542 of your Pew Bible. This is the 82nd Psalm. Listen for the word of God. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly? and show partiality to the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the orphans. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are gods. Children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke. And before we, before we read that, I want to tell you a story. This happened yesterday, so it's fresh. Yesterday morning, about 10.30 in the morning, I look out my back window and see a jet stream of water coming from somewhere. I don't know where at first, whether it's coming from the roof or from, it's a torrent of water. It's coming from somewhere. I get, I kind of rush out to the back patio and I see it's coming from the neighbor's yard. And at first thinking, well, she left her sprinkler on or something, but no, it's a, it's a torrent. It's just water is going everywhere. And I take just a moment, to, I, I have to grab a chair because my fence is six feet high, it's a wooden fence. And I stand up on the chair and I look over and here is this, she's hung her hose on, the, on her side of the fence, left it on but had the nozzle off. And so it had built up a lot of pressure and all of a sudden in that hot sun, it had just split open and was just gushing water everywhere. My neighbor, that's the important word in the story, okay, neighbor, uh, sleeps during the day. Her son, who's my age, works nights. So she follows that schedule. She, she follows that schedule too. But I go over and I bang on her door and say, you know, try to get her to wake up. And then I notice her car is gone, actually. And so she's gone, and I don't know what to do, so I have to figure out how to get over the fence. And so we get a pole that has a kind of a pronged end, and we're over the fence. We're trying to get that faucet, just reach it, just right so we can turn it off. No, it doesn't work. We can't do that. So I run and get a ladder and get up on the ladder. And this time I realize, okay, I've got to get sneakers on because her backyard is now turning into a swamp, right? Mud and everything. And um, I had to get long pants on because I have to go over the wooden fence. So I get, the, I get the, the ladder. I get up over there and precariously kind of climb down her side of the fence on over rocks and everything. And I get over there and I turn off the faucet. And was able to climb back over the fence in the hot sun. It's 114 degrees out there. Because I'd been working on this sermon the night before, reading this scripture passage all week, I'm asking that question, what is a neighbor supposed to do, right? 
Well, my neighbor's a wonderful woman, and when I go away, she, she waters my plants. Sometimes I've come home from a long trip, and she's cleaned the grout in my kitchen floor, you know. She's shown me how to be a good neighbor. But our scripture passage actually takes us deeper into what it means to be a neighbor and discovering who the neighbor is, besides all the, the good things we can do for one another. So here are these words from the... Ch- the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the man asked Jesus, And Just who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side too. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured wine and oil on them. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay whatever whatever you spend and more. Which of the then Jesus turns to them and says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the man said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, send your Holy Spirit upon us that we might hear with wisdom and receive with joy what you are saying to your church this day. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Now, you have probably heard this story before. Even if you're new to the Christian faith, it's one of the Jesus classics. I can't even begin to imagine how many sermons have been preached on this passage under the title of The Good Samaritan. Now, we've heard that phrase so many times, though, that we may have lost track, actually, of the insult that lies at the heart of putting the word good next is Samaritan. It sounds innocent enough, the good Samaritan. Be a good Samaritan, one generation says after another. 
but we don't even stop to question it. It, it just means be a good neighbor, right? You know, my grandfather used to belong to the Good Sam Club. Anybody out there ever belong to the Good Sam Club? Two hands, I see. All right. Three. All right. Here's a quote about the Good Sam Club. It is an international organization of uh, recreational vehicle owners and the largest organization of RV owners in the world. It is focused upon making RVing safer and more enjoyable and saving members money through club-endorsed benefits and services. Pretty far removed from the world of Jesus and what's going on in this text. We've forgotten that the phrase Good Samaritan is a little bit of a backhanded compliment. It's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek slander. It's salacious. It's provocative. It's almost racist. Putting good next to Samaritan is akin to putting good next to any other identity we presume to be outside of our social norm from any time period. A good Irishman, a good Italian, a good Swede, a good Norwegian, a good Hatfield, a good McCoy. Now, if the Apostle Paul had told this parable, he would have called it the good Galatian. All right, not enough laughter. If you want to know what that's a joke's about, thank you. You can ask me. I wrote a dissertation on the book of Galatians. Ask me what that's about later. But throughout history, one group after another has vilified someone else. The outsider is automatically seemed as less than. And so if one of the others comes into our life and we get to know that other and he or she doesn't seem so bad, we might just might say, well, she's one of the good ones. Yeah. You know, a Hatfield brings home a McCoy, somebody that she's been dating at college, and her mother looks at her and says, really, honey, a McCoy? And she says, oh, yes, Mama, I know, but he's one of the good ones. There's always a little bit of the unsuspected in finding a good one, right? Always a little bit of a dig, a little bit of an insult. Well, you know, he's a good Mexican. She's a good Iraqi. They're good Afghanis. He's a good Democrat. She's a good Republican. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. You're getting a little too political, aren't you? Let's just stick to Jesus. He wasn't political. He was concerned about salvation. And that's an otherworldly matter, isn't it? Well, let's take another look at our scripture. We hear it as a man walks up to Jesus and asks him about eternal life. He's not talking politics. He's talking about spirituality, right? Well, when we take a little closer look at this situation and read past all of the times we have heard this story before, we might, just might, hear something different. This person who walks up to Jesus doesn't do so alone, as if he's in the pastor's office. He does so right out in the open. Now, Jesus had been teaching the crowds. He's with the crowds, teaching them some radical things about the kingdom of God. And this guy walks up and asks him a question, what must I do to have eternal life? It's not a question born out of private, individual wrestling with one's conscience. The man is an expert in the teachings of the Torah, the law. 
He knows Scripture. He knows the laws of God and of Moses and what is required of him and is required of everyone around him. His question to Jesus is provocative. It's provocative because not everyone in that crowd is on the same page about salvation and eternal life. This guy's question is sure to spark debate. It's like when a reporter calls out to a passing politician and asks, what are you going to do about gun violence, Senator? And such a question is a trap for the politician. There is no right answer to give in that moment with all the TV cameras pointed in her direction. Well, it's just something we're going to have to work on together, and she scurries away. Something like this is going on in our scripture passage today. We're usually so quick to jump to the parable part of, parable part of the story, the good neighbor that we miss the whole context of why Jesus tells the parable in the first place. People are always trying to trap Jesus in his words. They want him to say something blasphemous right there in front of the crowd so that they can arrest him and take him away or at the very least turn those very crowds against him. Because you see, Jesus gets people thinking. And that's the last thing political and religious authorities want thinking people. We don't even have to imagine the kind of questions Jesus might get today. Jesus, should somebody who's had an abortion go to prison? Jesus, is it lawful to own assault weapons? Jesus, can two people of the same gender be, get married? Again, you might ask, whoa, 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 you're getting way too political again. This guy in the story was asking Jesus about spiritual matters. Stick to spiritual matters. Yes, yes. The guy in the story was asking about spiritual matters, but he did it in a very public way. He asked a question that was on everybody's mind. He poked the bear. He asked Jesus, who had been testing the limits of lawfulness everywhere that he went and did ministry. You know, like those times when he healed on the Sabbath or he told folks, you know, it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar because you know what? Caesar's face is on the money that you have in your hands. Jesus taught in ways that seemed to counter everything the crowds understood about their religious system. A time when each and every day was overshadowed by the looming presence of a foreign, occupying, godless force, the Romans. A force that wreaked violence and devastation wherever it went. The times were no less volatile than they are today, no less unsure, and no less complicated where religion and politics get all mixed up. What must I do to inherit eternal life? is no softball question about one's private journey of doing things just right enough to earn one's, God, one's way into heaven and into eternal reward. The question was a rat's nest of problems with no satisfying solutions. Salvation was no less a political reality, right? Get this, the word salvation meant something like this, complete deliverance from a foreign occupying force. So talking about salvation could get somebody in trouble. Yes, the young man asked Jesus about eternal life, but eternal life is not possible without salvation, deliverance, emancipation, freedom. And you know, Jesus' very name means God is salvation. 
Jesus' very presence in the midst of an occupied land was a provocative, a provocative question. No, not a question, really. Jesus was a statement, God's statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was the light of the world, a light in darkness. Jesus was the spark that was standing so close to the powder keg at, the, at that point where religion and politics and everything came together. The law of God and the freedom and the spirit. And this guy just walks up and asks an innocent question? I don't think so. So Jesus looks at the man, and he knows that the man is steeped in the law. He's a lawyer, but Jesus can see he's a good lawyer. <laughs> the man shows he is a good lawyer because he answers his own question with just the right words. When Jesus asks, uh, you tell me, since you're a good lawyer, what does the law say? And the good lawyer, without thinking or hesitating, says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, You have given a right good answer. Do this, and you will live. And before the guy has a chance to turn to the crowd and get them all riled up and say, yo, you hear that? Jesus has validated what I just was thinking all along. Follow the law and everything will be okay. You hear that, you skeptics? I told you all, you folks, that you don't even believe in heaven. He didn't deny that there's a heaven. You all are wrong. I am right. Jesus doesn't even give him that chance. Jesus gets ahead of his narrative with his own narrative his own story. He tells us a story, a doozy of a story. It has an innocent traveler walking down an infamously treacherous road. It's got thugs and ruffians. It's got a cast of characters who are supposed to be good, but turn out to be bad, at least not so good. And it has a wretched outsider who acts like the most upstanding and laudable, law-abiding, law-superseding citizen that there ever was. And in the midst of the story, breaks forth compassion. Compassion so over the top that it puts to shame all other acts of compassion. A Samaritan intervenes when no one else will. He touches when it almost seems forbidden to do so. He binds up wounds, he houses, he pays for, he goes above and beyond. Whatever it costs, I will pay it. Jesus wants to shake up our world, shake up our worldview ever before we can say, I know what Jesus is saying. Jesus has just validated everything I already believed. Follow the law and we're all good with God. Jesus gets ahead of the narrative with his own story. Jesus says that God will show up in your life and in my life in most unexpected ways. God will show up in your world and in my world and in your political system and in my religious way of thinking and will startle us out of our complacency. God will shock you by being good when you least expect good in your life. 
And when God shows up in this startlingly compassionate and shockingly loving way, God will simply say, do likewise and you will live. Jesus completely redirects the young man's attention away from the politically charged question, what about salvation? Jesus says, when God shows up in the next Irishman, Italian, German, Mexican, Iraqi, Afghani, Scottish, Swedish, Norwegian, British, Hatfield, McCoy, black, white, Asian, Republican, Democrat, homeless, billionaire, stranger in your midst. And God does something awesomely amazing, something that restores life, a kindness beyond your understanding. Seek understanding by doing likewise, and you will live. And you will live without your eyes, without your eyes geared towards eternity, but, but to seeing God in life here and now. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God in your neighbor, the neighbor you never knew you had. The world is too dangerous a place filled with violence and despair for us not to dare to love. Love God and love your neighbor, your wretchedly good neighbor, and you will live. Do this and you will live. Do this and we will live. In Jesus' name, we will live. Amen.